cases of vandalism against Catholic statues in California have been reduced to misdemeanors. Are vandalism and violence against Catholic targets in California getting a pass? Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione of San Francisco joins us with analysis. And with the Synod on Synodality looming, some have noticed more and more confusing ambiguity coming from the Vatican. Where is the clarity of thought and teaching that the faithful are yearning for? Franciscan University of Steubenville theologian Dr. Regis Martin is here to weigh in. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. First, some news. As the debate over gun control heats up, the Cardinal Archbishop of Newark is asking Americans to voluntarily give up their constitutional right to firearms. In a May 26th letter titled, Pray for an End to All Instances of Violence, Cardinal Joseph Tobin says the following, let's voluntarily set aside our rights in order to witness the truth that only peace and never violence is the way to build a free society that has lived concretely in our homes, our neighborhoods, our communities, our nation, and our world. Cardinal Tobin made the plea after a record number of shootings have occurred in the U.S. in just the first half of 2023. He went on to urge what he calls a synodal effort to actively resist gun violence through prayer, advocacy, and voluntary self-restraint from the Second Amendment. The Marin County, California DA's office recently decided to reduce charges against five individuals who, in October of 2020, defaced and pulled down a statue of St. Junipero Serra on the grounds of the Mission San Rafael. The charges were reduced from felonies to misdemeanors. In the last several years, there have been hundreds of cases of vandalism and desecrations of Catholic Church property. Would similar acts be considered hate crimes if committed against Jewish or Islamic institutions? Here now, with his thoughts on this matter and more, is canon lawyer and Archbishop of San Francisco, His Excellency Salvatore Cordelione. Archbishop, thank you for being here. In your letter to the Marin County DA, Lori Fagoli, or Frugoli, uh, opposing her decision to reduce these charges for these vandals, you said that you were disappointed but not surprised. Why weren't you surprised? I've received this kind of treatment from government officials before over and over. It became very clear during the COVID pandemic the way the government was treating us, you recall how they were clamping down on houses of worship, conducting worship services, and all the efforts I had to make to uh, force them to free up worship when they were letting other people go back into operation. I would meet with both mm -hmm. uh, government officials here in San Francisco, the bishops of, of California would converse with the government officials in Sacramento, and it was the same thing where they would tell us they're trying to make this work. They want to make sure uh, everyone is kept safe and they affirm what we're doing. In the meantime, they let other people go back into operation. 
but they keep religious worship services uh, under very tight regulations, not even allowing us to conduct services inside when they allow department stores to be open according to their safety plan. And we submitted a safety plan that had scientific evidence that it is safe to use. And they would not answer our questions as to why we were being treated unequally. So I've seen this happen too many times with government officials. So that's why I was not surprised that it happened again. I was hopeful that it might not, especially when the DA charged the these uh, uh, perpetrators with a felony charge, a felony vandalism. It did give me some hope, but I wasn't banking on that because I've been around that block too many times before. Hmm. Well, it's remarkable to me that this story drops the same week as a story of a California elementary school. They found a, a burned pride flag in a potted plant, and they're investigating that as a hate crime. Do you see the disconnect here? Uh, well, sir, I see the hypocrisy. Uh, certainly, we're, we're not treated that way because we're Catholics. This is all part of anti-Catholic bigotry that's been a part of the country from the very beginning. It's waxed and waned. When I was growing up, people my age were growing up, it was waning. We had kind of a more of a consensus around the country of the Judeo-Christian ethic. The country was started with the Protestant vision, a biblically-based Protestant vision, but found ways to accommodate later immigrants, Catholic immigrants and Jewish immigrants from Europe principally, and then other immigrants from other parts of the world. But now this anti-Catholicism is back on the rise, and this is another example. A hate crime is perpetrated against us, and at least it got charged as a felony, even though it ended up not being uh, a felony charge. Uh, but I knew there was no way it would be charged as a hate crime simply because we're Catholic. Um, so it's more uh, well, it's hypocrisy that's happening here. Uh, Archbishop, according to the uh, Marin County DA, this decision came after a thorough review by prosecutors, long discussion among church members, community members, the defendant's participation in what they call a restorative justice process. Were you or anyone at the San Francisco Archdiocese part of those restorative justice conversations with these perpetrators? No, and this is what makes it absolutely outrageous. When the perpetrators, people were telling me that I, I should go for restorative justice, I was waiting for them to suggest it. When they did, I was the one who suggested we do it before the trial. Normally, it's done after a trial. There's a conviction, so you know there's a criminal, mm -hmm. and then restorative justice tries to bring about reconciliation between the criminal and the criminal's victims. I'm the one who said, mm -hmm. well, let's take this extraordinary step and do it before a trial. Maybe we could avoid a trial. I didn't want there to be a trial. Uh, reconciliation and, and re restoration is better than a trial and a, and a conviction. But the archdiocese was kept out of the process. The mediator was working with the perpetrators, stating she wanted to get them ready then to, the, to then bring in the archdiocese, but she, she was keeping us at arm's length, and me in particular. She saw me as a problem and the perpetrators as the victims. When I was going this extra wow. mile to try to be conciliatory, uh, there was a parishioner at the parish who was against me, siding with the perpetrators, and they were listening to him. And now they're saying because of that, there was restorative justice. And I was very clear with them, he's not to be a part of the process. They agreed he would not be a part of the process. 
uh, is very clear. I'm the one who represents the perpetrator, the, the victims of this crime. The pastor represents the right. parish, and there are the immediate victims, but all Catholics, especially in our archdiocese, are the victims. I represent them. We were kept out mm -hmm. of the process, and now she says they participated in restorative justice when the victims, representatives of the victims, were not even involved. I, I, well, and in your letter, in your letter to the it's district, clearly, it's clearly yeah. because we're Catholic. This would not happen with well, any it, other vulnerable minority well, group. You're right. And look, in your letter, you point out that the officers of the San Rafael uh, Police Department, they watched this felony being committed and they did not step in to do anything about it because of orders from a higher authority. And there's I, been no I'm, investigation into who gave that order. Why do you think I'm presuming that's the case? It, I'm presuming it was orders from higher authority because there was an agreement between the parish and the San Rafael Police Department. They knew this statue was vulnerable, that if protesters trespassed onto the property, the police would intervene to stop them. And not only that, this they they were protecting the statue. They 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 wrapped it in in uh, some uh, uh, soft uh, uh, like cloth and then wrapped that right. around a very strong plastic uh, packaging material called Volqueen. It's very thick and heavy. Mm -hmm. They came with the tools they needed. They knew they had to, to cut this up and remove it and remove the padding in order to deface the statue before tearing it down. Mm -hmm. So they, they were all prepared and they knew what they were doing. And there was this agreement and the police did not stop to intervene. Did, did so not, there was premeditation here. Stop them. And yeah, so there was premeditation on the part of the they're, they're doing this against Junipero who defended the people. So you see in the in the video clip at, at one point there's a protester holding one of these signs that says "Land back now." Well, actually, that was the plan of the Franciscans. They came to educate and evangelize the Indians, teach them trades, teach them the arts, teach them the Catholic faith, uh, teach them how to uh, cultivate crops using the land, teach them how to domesticate animals and, and animal husbandry, and then hand the territory back to them for their own self-governance. But that all fell apart when Mexico obtained its independence from Spain, secularized the missions in 1834, expelled the Franciscans, seized the territory for itself, closed the schools, and then dispossessed the Indians of everything they had been given. And then a few years later, when California went into the American period, there was an explicit genocide on the Indians. They militias went out to exterminate them. So, but the Franciscans, their plan was to give the territory back. They weren't able to because Mexico stole the land from the church. So hold your, give the land back signs to the Mexican government and the California government, not the Catholic church. Yeah, no, it's amazing. The, the distortions of Junipero Serra and his legacy is really remarkable and bears no semblance of the historic record, which I've, I've read, I know you've read extensively, and you just recited some of it. The perpetrators who committed this crime, Archbishop, have been asked to pay mon monetary restitution to the church to repair or replace the statue. They have to complete 50 hours of volunteer work, uh, apologize in writing, participate in a community forum with a credible historian, and they have to stay off church property. Now, you argue that, quote, this course of action would not have been taken with anyone else. In fact, this crime likely would have been charged as a hate crime, at least if it were perpetuated against certain other minority or vulnerable groups of people, perpetrated rather. Why do you think 
that is. Why does it seem these crimes against Catholics or Catholic property is not taken as seriously as crimes against any other group or faith? As I said, there is this long history of anti-Catholicism in the country. It's different now than it was in the early part of the history of this country. Thank God we're past mm -hmm. that now where it was Protestants, you know, perpetrating this anti-Catholicism. We now enjoy, especially with some groups of Protestants, strong bonds of fellowship because of coming together on, on critical moral issues of our time. So it's now more from what I would call the secular fundamentalists who are opposed to the church's values and, and what we stand for in terms of, well, the dignity of the human person, what it means to be a human person, and God made them male and female, and all, all of the, well, what I call the below the belt issues, right? There's so much yep. opposition to our, 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 our values around uh, marriage, uh, family, uh, the dignity of human life in every condition, in every situation. There's so much opposition to that. Uh, and so this is what's fueling the anti-Catholicism of our own time. What very much worries me is, as I said, this gives the signal that people can get away with attacking Catholic Church property and our sacred symbols without any legal consequence. And we know from yeah. history that it doesn't stop there. It keeps getting worse. We've already seen it getting worse in our own country. Look, for decades yeah. now, the government has been taking away our rights of full religious liberty, right? To serve the community according to our moral values. We have the Catholic Charities Adoption Agencies, the Little Sisters of the Poor, and then government officials starting, strangely, this term, freedom of worship, not freedom of religion. Mm -hmm. Then during the COVID mm -hmm. lockdowns, they were even suppressing our freedom of worship, the core of the many elements of religious freedom. It now attacks on property, on sacred objects. It just keeps getting worse. And history shows that if this goes on unabated, uh, unabated that attacks on property eventually morph into attacks on persons. So this well, is something— Well, and, and I, think, I think you're touching something that we are seeing a trend, and you don't hear about this because it isn't reported widely. If this were any other group, it'd be front-page news. I mean, the other day you had a pro-life— uh, a protester uh, outside a clinic. He was popped, an 80-year-old and another 70-something-year-old, popped in the face and beaten down. And I saw no coverage of it except a few little squibs on Twitter. There have been nearly 300 attacks on Catholic churches, including arson, destruction of statues, gravestones, graffiti. And that's just since 2020, 300. What does this decision by the Marin County DA and others like it say to Catholics and our place, if you will, in society today? Well, it reaffirms what I said in my experience trying to deal with government officials during the COVID lockdowns. We don't count. We're expendable, and any decisions involving our rights will be based on what is politically expedient. That was my experience during COVID lockdowns. That's my experience, again, during this horrendous crime that is is deeply painful to those of us who are devout Catholics and very devoted to St. Junipero Serra, who was like a neighbor for me when I was growing up. I grew up three miles from the first church that he founded in San Diego. He was like a neighbor of mine growing up. And so I have many mm. Catholics like me have this great devotion and fondness for him. He's a true father of California. And so right. this is deeply painful. But we're told, no, that doesn't count. For other Archbishop, people, it does, when I, when I but not for us. 
Yeah, when I see this, I think it's another symptom of Americans' uh, self-hatred and turning on their very their their own history and who they are. They're very persons. When you try to expel somebody like Junipero Serra, who not only founded California but brought humanity and faith to the region, civility and civilization, really. Um, when you try to stamp him out, what are you replacing him with? That's the question. I have to move on to another story. The Dodgers, as I don't have to tell you, have decided to reinvite this anti-Catholic group of drag queens, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, to their what they call Pride Night later this month after mounting pressure from the LGBTQ community. Your Excellency, this group openly mocks the church. Um, obviously lampoons nuns and the person of Jesus himself, turning him into a sexual object. I'm not going to show the video. But um, I know you're a big baseball fan. What was your reaction to the Dodgers' decision when you heard it? Oh, I felt disgusted. But it's another example of how it keeps getting worse. They've been doing this for many, many years without any consequence. That's not enough. Now it's being celebrated in the popular culture. Right, so it just keeps getting worse. And uh, again, would this happen with any other religious or minority group that the, the country would celebrate a group that disparages them and violates what they hold sacred? But somehow with Catholics, it's allowed. And this, this has nothing to do with the dignity of LGBTQ people, right? I know many of them have been harmed because of their sexual orientations and their their perceived gender identities. I know they've been harmed, but this is this is not about affirming their dignity. This, this is just absolute indecency. Everyone should be opposed to this, regardless of where they lie on that spectrum, because it's just plain indecency and, and should not be accepted in any kind of a civil society. Archbishop, do you think the Dodgers and other groups feel um, empowered or free to kind of engage in this kind of political activism because Catholics have sort of opted out of the public square or simply don't believe any longer? Is that what we're seeing, kind of a diminishment of practice and belief? So nobody steps up to defend uh, the church or its symbols or its statues or even what it stands for. Pope St. John Paul II knew what it takes for truth and, and justice to prevail. It's solidarity. The trade union in Poland was solidarity, right? It was because of solidarity that it, the movement began in Poland and they were able to bring an end to the Soviet empire. With solidarity, we could prevail. It's, as you say, it's a lack of solidarity among Catholics. We become too complacent and too accepting of whatever the social social pressure is a very intense uh, mechanism to get people to conform. We've been too complacent with that. But I'm afraid the time is not long before we will have no choice, because I see this getting worse and worse and worse. There will be no room to be a complacent Catholic. And maybe this is the winnowing process the church needs that God is providing for us in our own time. So I'd make this plea to my Major fellow Catholics. Please be faithful. Yeah. Please be true. And let's bond together in solidarity for what is true, right, and good for all citizens. 
Major League Baseball players have objected to what the Dodgers are doing here. They've even rebuked them. Uh, Catholic player Trevor Williams, who pitches for the Nationals, tweeted the following earlier this week, to invite and honor a group that makes a blatant and deeply offensive mockery of my religion and the religion of over four million people in Los Angeles County alone undermines the values of respect and inclusivity that should be upheld by any organization. I also encourage my fellow Catholics to reconsider their support of an organization that allows this type of mockery of its fans to occur. Your thoughts, Archbishop, on his statement, and should Catholics boycott Dodger games, or at least this game, Solidarity will prevail if Catholics and other people of goodwill who want what is decent and right bond together in solidarity with uh, with approaches such as that. Then um, I think all professional sports organizations will get the message that people will not tolerate this. But we need to be mm. unified in doing so. You know what's interesting? Following their um, honor of this anti-Catholic drag group, the, the Los Angeles Dodgers announced they'll be hosting what they call a Christian Faith and Family Day on July 30th. Now, does that address the problem here uh, by after honoring this anti-Catholic group? Is having a Christian Faith and Family Day equal to hosting a group that mocks the faith? We would never do this because we are Christians, and so we don't believe in hate. But what if that Christian event uh, featured a group that disparages LB LGBTQ people and kind of mocks what they hold sacred and what is important to them and disparages it? Would they allow it to go on? Mm -hmm. That's not Good satisfactory. Question. Yeah, we appreciate the opportunity, but this doesn't make uh, restitution for the harm that they've done. No, I, I had a player tell me, of, of, I won't say who, but of an African-American player say this would be like inviting the Klan in one day and a few days later having the Black Family Day. He said it doesn't fly with me, but uh, I'll let him speak for himself point, in time. Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione, we thank you for being here and uh, thank you for your time. Thank you. With the Synod on Synodality set to begin in just a few months, Moral theology and traditional Catholic teaching on sexuality seem to be under daily assault, even from within the church. Where is the voice of reason upon which the faithful have been able to depend throughout church history? My next guest has been asking just that question. He's the professor of theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville and author of a recent column in Crisis Magazine entitled, Put an End to the Madness. Would you welcome Dr. Regis Martin to the program? Professor Martin, thank you for being here. I want to begin with your recent op-ed in Crisis, where you write jokingly about placing a call to Pope Francis during his Wednesday audience, and you ask him to stop all the madness. Uh, in your telling, Francis does take the call. Uh, what point were you making by uh, beginning your op-ed that way? What were you attempting to do there? Well, you know, somebody said that uh, if you don't try to slay your audience, uh, your reader with your first sentence, uh, you might lose them. So I, I thought maybe I would begin with a spoof, uh, a send up, and it was really a caper. But uh, a lot of people misunderstood and thought that I had, in fact, contacted the Holy Father. And if they knew anything <laughs> about my computer skills, 
I, I don't even own a smartphone. I can barely dial my own number. But uh, I thought that would be a good point of entry uh, to sort of electrify the attention of, uh, of my reader. Yeah. And you write about several problems you see under this pontificate, beginning with the deposit of faith, the depletion of which you say appears to have been programmatic and a programmatic theme of this pontificate from the start. Where do you most see a depletion of the deposit of faith? And why are more of the faithful and even bishops uh, not pushing back against it? Well, I, I think there is a, a twofold uh, crisis that we, we face. On the one hand, uh, a straight out crisis of faith. People don't know what to believe. Uh, there's really no sense of the faith. But then there's a crisis of courage. Uh, and I think this afflicts a great many of the bishops and cardinals. They certainly know what the deposit of faith is, but they don't seem able to summon the courage to defend it. Uh, and that I find pretty shocking and really rather unprecedented. I mean, we have to go back maybe to the fourth century, the crisis of Arianism, to find the same sort of uh, systemic silence uh, in the face of, uh, of uh, a full-throated assault upon the basic uh, teachings of the church. Yeah. Uh, what, were, what were the two, if I could get you to focus on the two most egregious departures from traditional teaching and that deposit of faith that really alerted you or alarmed you early on? Were, were there sure. one or two I, that you just said, wait a minute, yeah, we, we shouldn't go down this path? No, no, a couple of uh, flashpoints. I, I think initially back in 2016 when he struck the deal with Islam and he conceded mm. that uh, there's a lot of pluralism uh, in the world and that uh, as regards religion, this was somehow God's will. Uh, this was his creative intention, part of divine providence, to permit a diversity of religious opinion, uh, which which strikes me as a direct frontal assault upon uh, the the centrality of 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 Christ. Uh, this downsizes uh, the presence of Christ. He's been relativized. He doesn't seem to be as indispensable as he once was. If we have other equally legitimate voices. And, and the other flashpoint, of course, was, was in the moral order, uh, that interview that the Pope submitted to, that Disney later picked up and turned into a, a documentary. A bunch of kids are firing questions at the Vicar of Christ, and of course, they're all about sex. And the Pope pretty much gives the game away by saying that the Church's catechesis on sex is still in diapers, which seemed to me really uh, insulting. I mean, the shade of Aquinas must be shaking uh, to think that uh, his moral theology was so infantile that we had to wait another thousand years uh, for the, the kids uh, in California to improve upon it. I, I found that very offensive. Yeah, no, I think, uh, Dr. Martin, you and I may be the only two people who actually sat through that spectacle. I mean, I, I forced myself to watch it one night, but I did so alone, so I didn't afflict the rest of the family. But it was—it's kind of shocking. I mean, you got a, a woman who does porn, you know, on the side. You got a, you know, a transgender kid who's kind of hassling the Pope about why don't you affirm me? It, it was a very strange um, and and uh, rather bizarre. Outing, and I don't know why anyone near the Pope would have allowed such a thing, you know. But anyway, the German Synodal Way has been slow rolling for years, offering things like 
uh, bishops approving the blessings of same-sex couples, uh, lay preaching during Mass, the possibility of women being ordained, and a request that priestly celibacy be re-examined by the Vatican. Now, you point out that this pope has done virtually nothing to stop it. Why do you think not? I mean, he did issue, uh, or, or offices in the Vatican, rather, did issue uh, rather targeted corrections along the way. Well, I mean, there are one of two possible explanations. Either there's a want of courage, so we need to put some moral starch into uh, his papal shirt, or he simply doesn't believe uh, anymore. And that, that I think, is, is really frightening. Uh, look, a basic right, which I think every Catholic has, and the violation of that right has been fairly routine in recent years, is the right to remain secure in the possession of one's faith. You ought to know, on the strength of what I believe, that I can summon the courage to confront my persecutors. And they come in all sizes and shapes. I mean, there was a time when the Roman Empire sought to exterminate Christianity. And then in the last century, the Third Reich was bent upon uh, the liquidation of faith. Or maybe it's the local CCD coordinator who flatters herself with the latest fashion in liberal theology. But whatever the source, Catholics, I think, are entitled, as a matter of simple justice, to remain secure, to have a serene sense of what it is I believe, what is permissible Roman Catholic doctrine, and what is beyond the pale. And when hotshot mm -hmm. theologians, swashbuckling moralists, uh, decide to blow up the faith, and the church's moral tradition, I would hope that the Pope would step into the breach and say, no, you can't do that. That's wrong. Let me unplug that machinery because it's running amok. And this Pope hasn't done that. Mm. And that to me is that that to me is is just inexplicable. Yeah. Well, why do you think he hasn't? Why do you think he's so tolerant of not only um, diverse viewpoints, to put it kindly, within the church? But even outside of the church, attacks on the faith and questions of long-settled uh, antiquity are now suddenly up for grabs again. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I can't really look into the soul of, uh, of the Vicar of Christ. But I, I can tell you this, that early on he wanted to make a mess. And right now he's got a bloody mess. And uh, somebody has to clean it up. And it doesn't look as if he's disposed to do so. One, one thing I do know is that you can have bad popes, and, and we can survive that because the, the devil and hell will not prevail against God's church. But what we mustn't do is sort of deify the papacy, divinize it as if everything he says is de fide. Sometimes what he says is it's off the wall, and cardinals and bishops should call him up on that. And their failure to do so, I think, invites a deep cynicism on the part of ordinary church-going Catholics. In an interview last week, Bishop Georg Batzing, who is the president of the German Bishops' Conference, said he believes, quote, the vast majority of Catholics in Germany support the decisions of the synodal way, 
and he sees no danger of a schism as a result of the direction being taken by the church in Germany. He did acknowledge that concerns about the synodal way have grown, but said, quote, that is precisely why we need more synodality in the sense of a common search for what the Spirit of God is telling us today and where it is leading. Polarizations are a great danger, not only in society, but also within the church, he said, especially when the relevant protagonists and groups no longer talk to each other. Dr. Martin, you've been a theologian for decades. What is synodality, and how did this become a destination unto itself, spiritually speaking? I, I think it's been a dead letter. Uh, I would never have uh, endorsed it or encouraged the spread of it. I think it's an invitation uh, to catastrophe, uh, to a kind of collapse of the church's sense of herself, stripping of everything distinctively Catholic. And we have to put a stop to it. It, it, it doesn't go anywhere except straight to hell. And uh, I, I think uh, no one wants to go there. In an interview last month with German media, Bishop Johann Bonny, the Bishop of Antwerp, Belgium, said that the Flemish bishop's decision to bless same-sex unions was, quote, not going against the pope. Bishop Bonny said that he inferred this from two conversations he had with Pope Francis himself. When asked if blessing same-sex unions gave him a conflict of conscience, uh, as he was going against a 2021 Vatican ruling by the dicastery of the doctrine of the faith, which states that the church may not bless same-sex unions, he said, quote, no, because it is about the pope. Not every man in Rome is pope. From my conversations, I know what my relationship with Pope Francis looks like. We speak cum Petro et sub Petro, with and under Peter, but not the whole Vatican is cum Petro et sub Petro. The Vatican has different positions and developments, and there are theological faculties in Rome that also belong to the Vatican and the Catholic Church. Rome is not just a document or a cardinal. No, Rome is also unity in diversity. Now, Dr. Martin, the registers, Ed Penton asked uh, the Vatican spokesman, Matteo Bruni, if the Vatican would be responding to Bishop Bonnie's claims. So far, we've heard nothing. Now, your thoughts on this, and do you see this kind of blatant disregard for church teaching and Vatican authority continuing as this synod process progresses? Well, it, it does seem to me that if something is regarded as sacred, uh, inviolable, then you would expect people to rally round and defend it, to shore up the best possible arguments in defense of what is, after all, an abiding, fundamental, indispensable deposit of belief. And the silence uh, on that uh, invites, I think, a, a kind of cynical uh, uh, regard uh, for these people who have been charged with the maintenance of the faith. If they won't come forward and defend the faith, then maybe uh, they don't think it's defensible, uh, and they should be honest and acknowledge it publicly and then become Protestants. Look, we could lose mm -hmm. all of Germany and much of Northern Europe. We, we you know, the popes before have taken that risk when they told Henry, you can't divorce your wife and remarry. That's adultery. And we're prepared to go. We're prepared to allow the whole of Europe to be fractured because the defense of marriage is worth it. I, I think we may have to summon that kind of courage in the 21st century and tell the Germans, look, you're 
you're, you've gone too far. Uh, we're pulling the plug on this. You're welcome to become Protestants, but you can't maintain a Catholic uh, identity anymore. It's dishonest. Mm. Oh. During his Wednesday audience on May 24th, Pope Francis marked the World Day of Prayer for the Church in China. Now, this was a day instituted by Pope Benedict in 2007 to be held annually on the Feast of Mary, Help of Christians. Pope Francis had this to say to the people of China and the world. And he's saying here, I wish to assure my thoughts and closeness to our brothers and sisters in China and share in their joys and hopes. I offer a special thought to all those who suffer, pastors and the faithful, so that in the communion and solidarity of the universal church, they may experience consolation and encouragement. Dr. Martin, your thoughts, I mean, the suffering of Catholics in China has been, um, that, that they've seen, really is at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. This pontificate has entered into that China-Vatican deal with this regime and renewed it twice. Uh, they've been loath to criticize the Chinese uh, government. And while it's wonderful to hear the Holy Father invoke the Chinese church, which he's done for the last three weeks, is this enough? No, it's obviously not enough. I mean, it's—no, uh, it, it isn't. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of sick-making, really. On the one hand, you extend uh, consolation to these people who are suffering, but in large part because of your policies and your failure to rebuke mm -hmm. those who are subjugating them. Th th this, to me, is, is a double standard. It's sheer humbuggery. If you really cared about the Chinese people who are, you know, languishing beneath the boot of, of a communist regime, then at least have the kidney to say to the, the leadership in, in Beijing, look, this is wrong. You've got to stop doing it. You need to treat people humanely and allow them to practice their faith in, an, in a completely unfettered way. You can't manage uh, the interior life, and that's what they're doing, and the pope ought to be able to say that. It's not a matter of diplomacy. Yeah. It's a matter of speaking the truth to power. Hmm. This week on Pentecost Monday, over 20,000 Catholic pilgrims filled the Cathedral of Notre Dame de Chartres in France after walking three days from Paris to pray that full freedom to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass could be possible. More than half of the people making the pilgrimage are young Catholics, under 20 years old. Pope Francis began the restrictions on the traditional Latin Mass with that motu proprio, Guardians of Tradition, back in 2021, uh, and they've seen restrictions on the TLM since then. What do you see as the message here, and how do you think Rome is accepting this? I mean, this is a youthful, organic demonstration of love for the liturgy, which one rarely sees ever. You know, there's a, a great line uh, from the poet W.H. Auden, who says uh, legislation is helpless against the wild prayer of longing. And you can see in these young French Catholics a longing for God, a desire for God, a hunger for transcendence, which is given a particular liturgical expression. And the Pope wants to stamp that out. That strikes me as really hideous. Uh, and why he would want to do that when here is a fresh 
vibrant outpouring of faith on the part of young people mm. who witness to that faith at huge cost to themselves. I, it, it would seem to me that you would want to affirm and promote that, encourage it. This is a genuine sign. These are signs of the times, which I think the Pope ought to mm -hmm. seize upon uh, and promote. The fact that he doesn't, that he's determined to somehow suppress it, uh, seems to me completely, completely bizarre. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm always stunned that, you know, for people who are listening and seeking the movement of the Holy Spirit, when it comes to you in technicolor with thousands of young people waving banners and in, in silent prayer and chanting the tradition of the eternal, you know, language of the church, everybody covers their ears and closes their eyes. So no accompaniment for them. It does strike me as bizarre, too, and inexplicable. I mean, it's like cutting the youthful limbs off of a tree. It, it makes no sense to me, and a dying tree at that. What needs to be done, in your estimation, Dr. Martin, to restore the deposit of faith and mend the fractures that you see in the church today? Well, I think it's it's at bottom a Christological crisis. I mean, who is Christ uh, for me? Is he the centerpiece of my faith? Is he the heart of 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 the of the world? Uh, is he Alpha and Omega? And if he is, then he ought to be everywhere and he ought to be enshrined in every place. You can't relativize him. You can't marginalize him. You can't negotiate uh, with the enemies of Christ and say, well, look, we'll compromise here and maybe there and, and not mention him quite so often. If, if you remove Christ, then you don't have a church. Uh, you eviscerate it. Uh, you, right at the heart of the church is Christ. And I would say, return to Christ, restore the primacy of Christ, and let his vicar uh, sing out his praises uh, in season and out. Mm, we will leave it there. Thank you so much uh, for the time. And you can read Put an End to the Madness by Dr. Regis Martin uh, on Crisis Magazine's website. That's crisismagazine.com. Thanks again. Well, thank you. And this Saturday, June 3rd, I am so excited to be going to the West Orange, New Jersey Street Fair for a very special event. I'll be outside the Thomas Edison Laboratory, the National Historical Park, signing copies of The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison. I'll be there from 11 a.m. throughout the afternoon. You'll find me at the Friends of the Museum table, the National Park Bookstore is selling copies of the book, and then I'll be signing them outside. It's really one of my favorite places, so come on out, say hello, read the book, and then experience it in person inside the Thomas Edison National Historical Park. Visit RaymondArroyo.com for all the details, and see you on Saturday. Christians are being persecuted around the world in record numbers, and that persecution is making its way west. What's driving it, and what can we do about it? Joining me to discuss is the Rome Bureau Chief for Breitbart and author of the new book, The Coming Christian Persecution, Why Things Are Getting Worse and What You Can Do About It. Please welcome Thomas Williams back to the program. Tom, thank you for being here. I want to start with the book uh, where you write that Christian persecution reached an unprecedented level at the end of 2020 when one in eight Christians experienced persecution and discrimination on average. Some 345 Christians are murdered around the globe each month because of their beliefs. And Pew Research found that Christians undergo harassment 
in 145 out of the 198 countries in the world, a significant higher number than just about any other single religion. Which, which countries do you think are the most dangerous to be a Christian today, and why are we seeing Christians targeted there? Well, this is really kind of the sleeper story of the decade, Raymond. I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that because th these are these st statistics are real, and it's something that most people are simply unaware of. Uh, and to give you one example, you're asking where it's particularly dangerous to be a Christian. Let's take the example of Nigeria, where it is most likely, if you're a Christian, that you will actually mm. be killed for your faith. Uh, this is something that there are deaths on a weekly basis in Nigeria, so much so that it's not even reported by news outlets anymore because it's just so commonplace. And in this case, it's driven, as we know, by is Islamic extremism, the radical Islamic. There's the Boko Haram movement up in the north. You've got the Fulani raiders in, in what they call the middle belt in Nigeria. But it's extraordinarily dangerous. The, the, there are attacks with machetes and uh, buildings and villages. Entire villages are torched when it's known that Christians live there. It's something that is targeting specifically people who share a Christian belief. Hmm. Many Christians, especially those living in the U.S. and Western Europe, would not see themselves, Tom, as persecuted or discriminated against. What would you say to them? What are they missing here? Well, I think there are two things, Raymond. One is we have to stand shoulder, and shoulder, shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters around the world who actually are suffering violent and aggressive persecution. Secondly, um, at least from my vantage point, it's even more disturbing what I see happening in the West, where the attitude toward Christians is evolving so quickly at such an accelerated pace that now Christians who used to be kind of the backbone of society was looked upon as a good thing to be a Christian. Now Christians are often mm -hmm. tarred as bigots, as homophobes, as people who are closed-minded, intolerant, narrow-minded, obscurantist, all these different things we hear flung at Christians just because we believe in Jesus Christ and believe in the moral teaching of the Bible. Hmm. I, I want to look at Europe for a moment. Uh, we have seen in the past several years, uh, I've seen it myself, I know you have, in, in France, Germany, recently in northern Italy, churches being desecrated and even destroyed. Who is doing this and why do we not hear more about these attacks in the media or an outcry from the Christians in those countries? They seem to just kind of be very blasé about this destruction happening in their own neighborhoods, in their own communities. Well, that's interesting because the government actually has a policy. Take the example of France. They have a policy to not reveal the motivations behind these attacks. They don't want you to know what is causing them. And so there's a lot of speculation. We know that in a number of cases, uh, there is, again, Muslim extremism. Uh, in, the, in the case of profanation and, and desecration, both of churches and of burial grounds, of cemeteries. But also, there's a radical form of secularism uh, that really sees religion and Christianity in particular as really an obstacle to progress, an obstacle to the agenda that they wish to promote. And so the, a lot of the aggression against Christians is also coming from that sector. Hmm. I, I want to move on to something that I, I read recently from Bob Fu. Now, he's president of a watchdog group, China Aid. He's a convert to Christianity. He was imprisoned in China for leading an underground house church and not registering with the Chinese Patriotic Association. In a recent interview, he said he was seeing the same tactics in Western nations that the Chinese Communist Party uses to crack down on churches and that sometimes 
the tactics used were straight out of the Chinese Communist playbook. He said, quote, the U.S. is increasingly exhibiting dictatorial attitudes, both culturally and politically, by censoring speech, enforcing woke culture, and not tolerating dissent. I saw the governor of California basically prescribe and order the church to shut down and say not only when they can worship, but how. The ways that he threatened to punish those churches and pastors sometimes were word for word exactly the same as the CCP is using against the Chinese churches, end quote. Your reaction to that uh, connection, Tom? Well, I find it incredibly disturbing, but I think Bob Fu is exactly right. Uh, I read his stuff, too, and I also follow very closely what's happening with the churches in China. Uh, it's been called an Orwellian surveillance state because they have cameras put up in churches. They now have an app, a government app, that you need to register with, and you need to get permission every single time you want to go to church. You, there's no blanket permissions. It has to be every time. So they know what church you're attending, how often you go, and they also know the content of what is being preached, and they make sure that it has to cohere with the, the, the Maoist ideology uh, behind the Communist Party there. We're seeing the same thing in the United States in the sense that there have been all these revelations in recent weeks about the FBI first targeting uh, yeah. pro-life protesters. Secondly, uh, that, that document about Latin mass goers as somehow being likely to be uh, white supremacists and tied to Christian nationalism. And, and so, you know, giving them a right to also plant listeners, plant people, agents dressed undercover in churches to listen to what is being preached. Exactly the same thing we see in China. Yeah. Uh, Tom, you're the Rome correspondent for Breitbart. You've covered the Vatican for several years. I want to talk for a moment about that Vatican-China deal, which we've reported on extensively. Why would the Vatican make a deal with communists rather than call them out for the suffering they inflict on persecuted Christians, especially those in, in the Catholic flock? And beyond China, why do you not hear more from the Holy See on this topic of persecuted Christians globally? Well, this is, this is an enormous problem, as you know, and I, I'm sure I, I, share, I share in your evaluation of what the Vatican has done in this case, and I think it's atrocious. I think you really have thrown the very faithful Catholics in China, that, you know, 6 million to 12 million number of underground mm -hmm. Catholics who have always been faithful to Rome, and suddenly they no longer have the support of the Holy See. And, I, and it's absolutely terrible. And it's leaving many of them completely out in the cold because now it looks like they're obstinate mm. because they don't want to join the Catholic Patriotic Association, which is government run and which has always been hostile to, to, to Rome. They consider themselves an independent yeah. church. So I think, uh, you know, the motivations behind it, if we want to listen and just take uh, the Vatican at its word, it's this idea of culture of encounter and dialogue. It's better to be sitting at a table than, you know, standing, looking at each other from across the room. Uh, but the problem is what we've seen since 2018, when this agreement was first signed, things have actually gotten worse, not better for Christians in China. Mm. There is more persecution, there's more abuse, and there's more surveillance going on of everything that's happening. Yeah, well, when you're seated at a table where they're slaughtering the people that are in your flock, that's not a table you probably should be sitting at. But uh, just to finish up, Tom, as a follow-up, why the reluctance, do you think, uh, on the Vatican's part for speaking out of the, about these global atrocities of persecution happening, whether it be in the Middle East or in China or in other parts of the world? 
Well, I think that the Pope himself, uh, he reports on and he criticizes certain abuses, and then he is silent about others. And it really depends on what his relationship is with the people behind it. I think that's, unfortunately, the truth of it. For example, back in 2016, 2017, when there were these cases of slaughters by uh, the Islamic State and others, that was a time when the pope was saying there's no such thing as uh, Muslim persecution. This is not something that Muslim terror groups do not exist. He was saying, if we talk about that, then we mm. have to admit that there are Christian terror groups and we're just as bad as they are. There are certain things he doesn't want to acknowledge because he doesn't want to offend those particular groups. China is another great example of that. He has not even been willing to call out yeah. the persecution of the Uyghur Muslims in the Xinjiang region there, simply because he is unwilling uh, to do anything that could irritate the Chinese and make them stand up from the table when he's desperate really looking for diplomatic relations there. Hmm. In your book, you write that things will get worse before they get better. And you say, quote, as the number of those who hate Christians or hold them in contempt is growing, Christianity in the West is flagging, and the will to speak out against Christian persecution or even acknowledge its existence is waning. And though the enemies of Christ, radical Islam, virulent secularism, atheistic communism, grow stronger every day, the determination to resist them is flagging. Why do you think it's flagging, Tom? And you point out that radical secularism is well, far a far greater threat in the West than, say, radical Islam. Absolutely. That's exactly the way it is. That's the central thesis of this book, is that we're seeing right now a perfect storm of Christian persecution, because the drivers of persecution, whether it's Hindu nationalism in India, whether it's radical Islam, whether it's this growing, very, very hostile form of secularism in the West, these are all getting stronger by the day. And the will to resist, and especially uh, the appreciation for religious freedom, as the first freedom, as the most important of human rights, uh, is something that is dwindling and, and dying. Because we see, for example, in the West, we see the LGBT lobby, we see uh, the, the abortion lobby, we see groups that do not want Christians to be able to speak about biblical morality because they find it offensive to the agenda that they are trying to push. And so I think that you're seeing, and, and Christians themselves are finding themselves, you know, weakened, and they don't want to speak out, and they don't want to this ostracization that they're facing, and so they prefer to, to accommodate. There's also been a rise in the so-called nuns, uh, N-O-N-E-S, uh, the non-affiliated, non-religious people in the United States. Uh, they're not, they now make up over a quarter of the population, 28 percent in 2021. What effect do the nuns have on acceptance of traditional Christian values and appreciation of the religious liberty you just mentioned? Well, I think the nuns, unfortunately, religious liberty becomes less important for them than other basic liberties. They see churches and they see Christianity in general as just another voluntary association with no particular status uh, deserving any you know, care that is the, the founding fathers believe that it should have. I mean, I find it appalling. We're a nation that's founded on religious freedom, where we have the, the pilgrims. We call them pilgrims because they came in search of a place where they could worship God freely and practice their faith uh, in, in a tolerant situation. And now we have 
the West turning in on itself, and particularly in the United States, which has always been a very, very religious people, we're finding it less and less yeah. so. I saw when that number of nuns crossed over the one-quarter mark, that's extremely disturbing, because these are people with no, yeah, not well, only no affiliation, but no appreciation often. Yeah, yeah. When you look at the patterns, Tom, as you have for this book, uh, when you look at the patterns of Christian persecution, how does it evolve and how is it made acceptable to the populace? Well, I think the way it evolves is you have to demonize a group before you can persecute them. You have to make them look bad. You have to make them look like the enemy. So you have cases where, the, where uh, Christians are more and more called narrow-minded, bigoted, hateful, uh, white supremacists, Christian nationalists, theocrats, all these different slurs used against Christians so mm -hmm. that ordinary people who didn't really care one way or the other before start seeing Christians as the enemy, as someone who's really getting in the way of a free America the way they understand it. That's always the first step, because that then allows you to become more aggressive, to become more uh, marginalizing and more ostracizing in your treatment of Christians to begin with. And that discrimination then easily passes on to something worse. Very good. We will leave it there. The coming Christian persecution, why things are getting worse and how to prepare for what is to come by Tom Williams is available at bookstores everywhere and online. Tom, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Raymond. That is all the time we have for now, but be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.